Well, it's a privilege to be here with you at ASI this morning and to be able to share uh, I've, about the Sabbath school lesson. I have to tell you, I've been living in the world of Jesus for the last five, four years and uh, kind of limiting myself to reading the gospel, so it was a real relief. No, I shouldn't say that. It was a real blessing to read Romans 5 because I haven't been focusing on Romans for a while. I've been focusing just on the gospel stories and to come back and to be able to take a look at this powerful passage. I'm really excited about sharing it with you. Uh, I want to thank ASI for their wonderful support of the biblical world during the past uh, five years. We've been working on this project, Tracing the Footsteps of Jesus. It's taken much longer than I ever dreamed, but I can tell you it's coming out much better than I ever dreamed as well, and we're very excited about it. We returned from our first film trip uh, in July of August of 2008. That was three years ago, and we returned right to the ASI in Lexington, Kentucky. And since that time, I've actually returned across the Atlantic eight times working on this series. So we're very, very excited about it. And the special offering has gone on several occasions to the biblical world. And part of the offering that will be taken today will help us to write lessons that will take the tracing the footsteps of Jesus from being just a nice, informative, faith-building television program to being a powerful evangelistic tool that you can use to study with your neighbors and friends. And so we're very grateful in uh, advance for the offering that you're going to give today. And thank you for the uh, privilege of letting me share with you this morning from the footsteps of Paul. Now, some of you told me you didn't recognize me because I didn't have my trademark blue shirt on. Now, I have a blue shirt, but it's not the one you're used to seeing on uh, the footsteps of Paul. But I have to tell you, that shirt is faded, much like my hair, so I thought it was probably better to uh, leave it off this morning. But uh, I want you to take your Bibles and and turn with me to Romans chapter 5. And uh, I want us to focus upon the memory text. Now, I don't know if you memorized the text or not, but it does say memory text there in your lesson guide. Did you notice that? And so I think it's important for us to to put these ancient words into our minds. And before we do that, just bow your heads with me as we pray together. Father in heaven, thank you this morning for this tremendous privilege of being here at ASI in Orlando. But thank you for the extraordinary privilege of meditating upon this priceless chapter of Romans chapter 5. We ask now that you will come and you will bless us with your presence, with your spirit, that you'll illuminate our minds as we study and meditate upon this passage, and may indeed it bring to us peace and hope, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have our memory text. Therefore being justified, well, say it with me if you have it. Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Isn't that incredible? Oh, how powerful. Now let's just break it down. He says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now earlier in the, in the book of Romans, he's explained the basis of this justification. And now he kind of refers to it and builds back on it. And he tells us that the result of this justification is what? Peace with God. Because remember, as we go right back to the beginning, as Paul does in this chapter, and he talks about that original sin of Adam. It brings a disconnection between 
man and God. Now, God is still there seeking and searching and looking as we see in the Garden of Eden, right? But what's Adam doing? He's running and hiding. There's a brokenness. But now he says, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God because that brokenness has been removed. Don't you like to break that word down, justification? It's been broken down so nicely, just as if I'd never sinned. And that's the way he counts us. And he says, in light of that, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us through faith access into this incredible grace. Oh, I love this passage. We have peace with God. The Apostle Paul had gone through the Roman colony of Pisidian Antioch. It's kind of way out in the middle of Turkey, and and, uh, it's kind of an odd place because it's so far from where Paul normally went on his journeys. It's uh, today probably four hours from the closest Bible site that Paul went to. But he goes up to Pisidian Antioch. It's a Roman colony. Veterans from the Roman army are settled there, and they have a copy of the great Arch of Peace from the city of Rome. It had been established by the rotunda of Augustus Caesar, and it has the accolades of the Roman Senate about Augustus Caesar, and it proclaims him to be the Prince of Peace and the Savior of the world. Paul says this is a misnomer. The real Prince of Peace is not Augustus Caesar. Yes, he brought the peace of the Roman sword to much of the ancient world, but he could not bring peace to the heart. Only Jesus of Nazareth The Messiah could do that. And so he says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, however, is a realist. Paul is a realist. He does not teach that peace is the absence of trouble. That's kind of a popular idea, isn't it? He says in verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope and hope does not disappoint us. Now, there's a very interesting brand of Christianity that's very popular today, and it fills rooms much larger than this room with people coming to hear it. I call it the gospel of wealth, health, and prosperity. You know what I'm talking about. If you turn on the television, that's what you often see. And if you just sow your seed here, God's going to give you a tremendous reaping of prosperity, and everything is just going to be fine in your life, and it's going to work out great. Well, Paul doesn't quite go along with that. That would be foreign to the Apostle Paul. Paul talks about how that this peace is in our hearts, and he says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and we rejoice also in our sufferings or the things we go through because we know this will develop perseverance and perseverance character and character hope, and hope will not disappoint us. This brand of Christianity would be foreign to the Apostle Paul. He taught us to rejoice in our sufferings and experiences. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote to the, the, this letter to the church of Rome from Corinth. And uh, so now let's drop over to 2 Corinthians. He's living in Corinth. He's writing this letter to Rome. And uh, let's see what some of Paul's experiences in life 
were. Now he has this peace and he has this hope. Is he exempt from the problems of life? Well, not exactly, as he will share with us here in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And we want to read verses 23 through 28. If I can see it without my glasses on. I can't, so I'm going to read my, with my glasses. <laughs> that happens to a lot of us, doesn't it? Okay. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like, like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. By the way, this is before his experience of being shipwrecked on the island of Malta, right? He's writing this before that happens. So he's shipwrecked at least four times in his life. I was shipwrecked. I spent a night in the open sea, and a, a day and a night in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at the sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've often known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked, and besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all of the churches. Now, Paul went through tremendous difficulties. So peace is not the absence of trouble. We may have trouble in our life, but I want you to know that that trouble is not an indication of God's favor or disfavor because Paul goes through that trouble, and yet he's able to say we have peace with God because he knows where it's leading, the things that we experience and that we pass through and we suffer that's okay, because it's going to build perseverance, and perseverance is going to build character, and character is going to give hope, and hope does not disappoint. Peace is not the absence of conflict. It's from having our hearts reconciled to the heart of God. We don't have to be on the run anymore. We don't have to be avoiding the Holy Spirit anymore. We have peace with God. When the first Adam sinned, he had brought a brokenness to him and his descendants. But now that brokenness is removed, and we're just as if we had never sinned. And so in our inner being, we have peace with God. Paul does not say, however, that because we're justified by faith, we have happiness. Now, God does not promise you happiness. Happiness comes from the English word hap, which means chance. And sometimes, by chance, your circumstances are good, and sometimes they're bad. When Paul was in Philippi, he was wrongly accused. He was not even able to exercise his right as a Roman citizen and say, wait a minute, I must have a trial. And they jumped right ahead, and they flogged him. Remember that? And so his rights had been violated He's beaten and with Silas, they're put in the stocks in the dungeon there in Philippi. And what's he doing at midnight? He's singing. I don't know if he was happy as he was singing because the blood had dried on his back and probably had not even been cleaned off. But he has peace in his heart. He has joy in his heart. Those are some of the fruits of the Holy Spirit 
in his life. And so as you pass through the experiences of life, don't use them as a barometer of, of whether God loves you or doesn't love you. Know that his love is based on these ancient words, right? It's beyond what, what happens in this mortal life. That's what Paul understood and what Paul taught, and that's what we need to remember as well. God promises to give us joy and peace, and it comes through being reconciled to God by faith through Jesus Christ. Next, Paul addresses the basis of this hope. Let's go back to Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. And uh, here is just, oh, what a fabulous verse. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Oh, I love that, don't you? At just the right time. I don't know about you, but I've received tremendous encouragement from that passage through my journey with Jesus. It wasn't because I was good. It wasn't because of all the things I had done and all the selfless acts of charity I had performed. He says, while we were what? Yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. It was while we were yet sinners that he died for the ungodly. I was born here in Orlando in the last millennium, the past millennium, and um, I grew up, my family of origin, they really weren't religious people. They were great people, but they really weren't religious people. But I, I had a good Baptist grandmother on one side and a good Adventist grandmother on the other side. And my uh, Adventist grandmother, she was a good grandmother, so she convinced me to go to an Adventist church school, the sixth grade and part of the seventh grade and the eighth grade. And, and then uh, when I was in the tenth, when I go into the tenth grade, she said, now, Tony, if you'll go to Mount Pisgah Academy, she lived in North Carolina, if you'll go to Mount Pisgah Academy and you'll graduate from there, I'll buy you a Harley Davidson motorcycle. Wow, that's good, you know. I thought, that's cool. So I'm off to Mount Pisgah Academy. And uh, they're in North Carolina, and uh, things work out pretty good, but I actually fall into, uh, into some problems there. And uh, the school's very kind. They're exceedingly kind, and we run away, and we end up down in Texas, and uh, they come down, and they get us, and I tell you interesting stories about that, but we want to talk about Paul this morning instead. But um, ultimately, I got to leave Mount Pisgah Academy in the back of a police car. No, that's not very good, is it? Got busted for marijuana. And uh, so I get to leave in the back of the police car, and they take me, and as they read my rights to me, they say, you can't be president because this is a felony, and you can't do this, and you can't. And so they said, anybody you want to talk to? And I said, well, I'd like to talk to the Bible teacher, Wayne McNutt. Can you send him to... to so Pastor McNutt came, and I said, you know, I can't do all these things, but could I be a pastor one day? <laughs> Where that came from, I don't know. But anyway, it was uh, kind of strange. But I said, could I be a pastor one day? And he said, yes, if you give, you know, if you give your heart to Jesus. I said, cool, I'll remember that maybe. And uh, so I was kicked out of the school. They, they had given me grace, and that was my third strike. And I was kicked out of Mount Pisgah Academy and went home to North Carolina and became very involved in the counterculture. As a matter of fact, three of us began to control the flow of drugs into our small town there in Salisbury, North Carolina. And, um, but I was struggling because while I was going to the Adventist church school, in one of those years, they taught us these incredible prophecies from Daniel. 
And, you know, it just always stuck in my mind about Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and, and Daniel 2. And in Daniel 7, those four beasts and how they all kind of came along and, and the ten horns. And it just always, oh, wow, I couldn't really shake it. And that prophecy of the 2,300 days, it was just in the back of my mind always. And, and they also taught about that idea of a judgment that one day I'd have to give answer for what I'm doing. And so I thought, well, the way to solve this is I'll just say there's not a God and there's not a devil. And if there's no God and there's no devil, then there can't be a judgment someday. Therefore, I can live the way I want to live, and I don't have to be troubled by any of this. That makes sense, right? So that was the philosophy I developed. Well, my cousin who uh, was there in North Carolina, he had made it all the way through Fletcher. So I had a lot of respect for him. And one night we were taking psilocybin mushrooms and I thought, if I can just get Philip to agree with me that there's no God and there's no devil, then I can just, you know, get away from this whole thing of having my conscience troubled. So I said, Philip, I said, the Bible's not true. I said, God doesn't exist. Don't you agree with me? And I'll never forget, he looked at him and he said, Tony, you can't write off the Bible. It's the age-old history book. There's something true about the Bible. Well, that just caused my world to tumble down like this. I thought, oh, no. And so... We went from there, and I attended a lot of rock and roll concerts, and my favorite band were the Rolling Stones. And they were touring in 1972, and they were coming to Charlotte on July the 6th, and I'll never forget it. We went to the concert, and I drove a carload of friends there, and Stevie Wonder played, and there, after he played, they moved the equipment. And there on the stage, I saw two serpents painted. Now, I have no idea. I was tripping and doing many different things. I don't know, but I saw two serpents. When I saw the two serpents painted on the stage, I thought, oh, no. All I could think about was the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And then the stones came out and they played, and the third song they played was Sympathy for the Devil. It was my, one of my favorite songs. I knew it by heart, but I never thought about the words. I was there in Pilate's judgment hall, made real sure he washed his hands and sealed his fate. Pleased to meet you. Hope you guess my name. What's puzzling you, that's the nature of my game. Just call me Lucifer. Yes, that's my name. Wow. Well, I heard that, and then I heard a voice in my mind, and the voice said, yes, I am real. You said I didn't exist, but I'm real, and you sold your soul to me. Well, no doubt about that. I sold my soul to him. And then I heard a voice saying, you've blasphemed God by saying he did not exist. You've committed the unpardonable sin. God will never have anything to do with you. You sold your soul to me. To me, you are mine. And tonight, you will have to pay for your sins. You will have to die tonight. Wow. Well, that kind of took the joy out of the concert. And uh, I sat back and thought I was going to die. You know, the, I thought I was going to have to atone for my sins. Now, it's interesting, and I would not ever cast any blame toward the schools. I don't know what the schools were teaching about this. And I know there's a lot of debates about what school. I have no clue because I was a selfish person doing my own deal. And so I really don't know what they were teaching about all this. But I didn't understand the gospel at all. I thought I was the only sinner in the whole world the only sinner in the whole world. And I thought I'd have to die for what I had done. I denied God's existence, and here it was. And so I settled back and just thought I would die at the end of the concert. Well, they all clapped for an encore at the end of the concert, and 
the road manager came, in, came out and said, thank you, we're through. And I hear, and you're through, this is it. You're going to have to sacrifice, you're going to have to die now. And as the Coliseum there in Charlotte emptied and people went out, my friends who were riding with me said, we have to go. And somehow they got me, we went out to the car, and I find it hard to believe, but I drove back out to Salisbury about an hour and a half away, and, and we went out to the farm, and all night long they partied, and I pondered what had happened. And I thought about what had happened, and I felt so lost. I, I, I was so... The next day I went to my grandmother's house. She was a wonderful Bible worker in the Salisbury, North Carolina church. And uh, I really couldn't verbalize very much of what had happened because I was, you know, to use the term of the day, spaced out. But uh, she had these literature evangelist versions of the Conflict of the Ages series. Some of you know what I'm talking about, the conflict. And there were those kind of big books. And I, I could just go through the, couldn't read. I was way too spaced out to read. But I could go through and I was looking at the pictures. And I came upon a picture that gave me a little window of hope. Again, I just don't understand the gospel at all. And it was a picture of the Garden of Eden. And there was Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and there was Jesus. Some of you know the picture I'm talking about. And there was Jesus, and he was stepping on the serpent's head. And I got a little tiny window of hope that maybe Jesus was stronger than the serpent. Now, again, it's sad to be this confused about the gospel. That's where I was. And so I saw that, and I kind of told Grandma a little bit about what happened, and, and she gave me a book, The Desire of Ages. And uh, a couple of days later, I took my friend home to Atlanta where she lived, and while I was there, I began reading Desire of Ages. And I'll never forget coming to page 25 and reading, Christ was treated as we deserve to be treated, that we might be treated as he deserved. He was condemned for our sins in which he had no share, that we might be justified, there's our word, by his righteousness in which we had no share, and by his stripes we are healed. And I said, wow, if that's what you're about, I want to get to know you. So I gave my heart to Jesus there in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, well, Came back, I'll just tell you one more part of the story. Came back and I still had a large stash of drugs and I told my best friend, he was an African-American guy about 20 years older than I was with a nose ring and this was in 1972 in North Carolina. And I told Perry about this and he said, wow, that's interesting. And then I decided to have one last party. And I'll never forget the Stones album, Hot Rocks, was playing. And, and as they were playing the music, Perry came to me with these red beady eyes and he says, you can't get away from it, can you? It's gotcha, doesn't it? And I said, oh, Lord, please help me. And I went out and got my little car and drove away, and that was the last time I ever participated in that lifestyle. So the Lord really plucked me. I want to just say, grandmas, never stop praying for your grandchildren. Grandpas, never, you have no idea. You know, at General Conference just a few weeks ago, I saw the vice principal of the school. Now, we had seen each other, I think, at the previous General Conference, and he was rather shocked that uh, the Lord had changed my life that way. Um, I actually got disciplined once and got sent to the girls dean's family, the Littells there in Tennessee, and, and uh, Margie actually was ordering the footsteps of Paul, and I took the call and, and said, well, you know, Margie, I recognized her name, you know. Uh, she went and told her board uh, uh, some story about this wonderful series, and I said, well, Margie, I'm actually the guy that uh, you guys disciplined and sent to your parents, and uh, the Lord got a hold of my life and changed me. So, 
grandparents, parents, kids praying for you, pray for one another. You know, never write anyone off as a lost cause. God's grace is incredible, and that's what we're talking about this morning, being justified by grace. We have faith. We have peace with God, and what a joy it is to describe that peace. What a wonderful thing. I was a sinner. I knew it, but I didn't understand Romans chapter 5, and what a joy it is to understand that now. I want you to take your Bibles, and let's go on in our passage. It wasn't because I was good or deserving, it was because of God's incredible grace that he reached into my heart. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, you see at just the right time, when we, were, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh my, that has to be one of my favorite passages. Was Paul referring to that popular Greek legend that so many of his readers in Rome would be familiar with? It was a story of a Greek king. He was a young man, Admetus, and he fell in love with a beautiful girl, Alcestis, the daughter of a neighboring king, but the father wouldn't let him marry her, and so the story goes that, that he has this encounter with uh, Apollo as a young man, and, and he treats him kindly, and Apollo promises to help him in the future, and so he helps him to, to be able to marry Alcestis, and at their wedding, he gives them a special gift, and the gift is that if he should ever fall sick, that someone who loved him could die in his place. Very pop. You can Google the story. It's a very popular legend in Paul's day. Well, the king and the queen lived very happily for many years. The people in their kingdom were blessed because they were such good rulers. And one day, Admetus grew ill. Admetus grew ill, and he began to get sicker and sicker. His parents were older, near the end, and so someone remembered the gift Apollo had given, that if someone who loved him would die in its place, he wouldn't have to die. And so they went to the parents and they said, you know, your son's such a good king and he's in his youth. And they said, oh, we love him a lot, but not that much, not that much. We only have a few years left to live. So they went to his brothers and sisters and his brothers and sisters loved him and, you know, they sat at the royal table and, and they said, we love him a lot, but not that much. Many people who owed their very lives to him in the kingdom. Oh, we love him a lot. But no one could be found who would be willing to die in his place. Well, his lovely queen heard what was happening. happening and so Alcides calls upon Apollo and says, he's such a good man. I'll die for him. And so she goes, according to the story, and lays on her bed, and her life ebbs away. Well, immediately he has a strength return to him, and he jumps up and he runs in to tell her. And there she is, lifeless upon the couch. Paul, very likely, is referencing this story that his hearers are very familiar with, because this is an incredible flowering of love. No one would do it, but here the wife would do it. 
And you can imagine the people are saying, wow, that is the ultimate flowering of love. And so Paul says, for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die, but God reveals his love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. It wasn't because we were good. It wasn't because we were kings. It wasn't because we were kind. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's how much he values each and every one of us. Wow. What an incredible story. Paul goes on in verse 9 and says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only this, not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so he says, if while you were a sinner, you were reconciled to God, just think about what it means after you've been reconciled. And he goes on to say that we shall be saved from God's wrath through him. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Seems like a reference to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, doesn't it? Where it describes Jesus as that eternal high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. And so, we should never question the depth of God's love for us. Sometimes we'll go through difficult times. Sometimes our health will fail. Sometimes our businesses may fail. Sometimes it just seems like God has forgotten all about us. But let's remember the ancient words. Let's go back to those ancient words and focus on them. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if he loved us that much, just think it hasn't stopped since we've been reconciled. He continues to love us. He goes on in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam's gift to humanity was death. Not the second death, but the first death. We all die because we're part of the human fabric. We share the DNA. The second death comes because of our choice because of our choice. Death came to all men because all has sinned. There are Jewish sinners and there's Gentile sinners. There are Baptist sinners and there are Adventist sinners. Because how many have sinned? Oh, we're all in the same boat. We're all in need of God's grace. All have sinned. Well, I wish we had time to talk about the law and, and just want to refer you uh, so this question to Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 20 about how those who don't have the law that God's revealed his nature and his person to all people Romans chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 if you don't have the law you're going to be judged uh, by, by the law and then he talks about 
If you don't have the law, you're going to be judged by the things written in your heart. He says, you show the working of your heart. Originally, the t- principles of the Ten Commandments are written into everyone's heart, into Adam and Eve's heart, and that's passed on to all of us down through the years. And so Paul says that those who don't have the law, they still show that they know something about the law because they have principles of right and wrong. How will they deal with that? How will they deal with that? Sometimes we struggle about how will God judge those who don't know. I'm just going to refer you because we're going to kind of coming down, we want to, I want to share one other major point with you, but 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 9 through 11 talks about how that God will judge the ungodly, but it says they're lost not because they don't know the truth, but because they don't love the truth. And so you may only know 1% of truth, or you may think you know 95% of truth. How do you relate to that 1% that you do know? That's how we'll be judged in this deal. How do you relate to that 1% that you do know? Well, it says death came upon all. That is the common denominator that we all face. People often ask me, what is the most intriguing, special thing that happened to you filming the footsteps of Paul? They say, you get to go in all these places and so on, and what's the most intriguing thing that happened? It was something that happened and surprised me. As we were going from place to place, I began to, the Holy Spirit helped me trace some interesting dots. You see, Paul's in Philippi, and he's ran out of Philippi. So he goes down to Thessalonica, and while he's there, he's ran out of Thessalonica. He goes out to Berea, and while he's there, he's ran out of Berea. And so he leaves Luke and Silas, and he takes Timothy, and they go down to Athens. And while he's in Athens, he's preaching, and neat things are happening, but he's worried about the church they planted in Thessalonica. So Paul sends Timothy back to check on the church in Thessalonica, and Paul goes down to the city of Corinth. Timmy comes down to Corinth, and he brings a report from the church they've planted in Thessalonica, and he says, Paul, something really bad happened. The church is devastated. And Paul takes out his pen, and he writes the first piece of the New Testament, first thing ever written. He says, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe Jesus died and came back to life. Right? First thing ever written, written to a church just as real as the church you attend when someone had died. And the people are wondering, will we see our loved ones again? And Paul says, I want you to know that the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ shall be raised first. And then we which are left shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will ever be with the Lord forever. When I saw that, that that prompted the writing of the New Testament, it raised the blessed hope about a thousand points in my thinking. You know? Wow. And then as we came to the conclusion of Paul's journey in the city of Rome, there's a little place outside of Rome. It's called St. Paul's outside. I'm sorry. It's called the Monastery of the Three Fountains. There's St. Paul's outside the walls. It's the great cathedral of Paul. But it's called the Monastery of the Three Fountains. Now, Roman... The tradition there in Rome is that Paul was cut, his head was cut off and the head bounced three times and three fountains popped up. And so when you go into that little place, there's three fountains and I don't believe that. But this is where they executed citizens in the first century. So most likely, Paul's executed here. So I thought about the story. I walked down the little lane. It's in episode 19 of the Paul series. So you know, we followed Paul for 13,000 miles. Paul has faithfully followed everywhere Jesus led, and now he leads to this little spot outside of Rome. 
We don't know his last words, but we do know his last letter. He said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I know that henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall award to me on that day, and not just to me, but to all who love his appearing. Can you imagine the first thing Paul wrote as a blessed hope? The last thing Paul wrote as a blessed hope. Because in reality, it's the only hope. We're all terminal in this deal because of Adam's sin. But because of what Jesus did, we have been justified by faith in Jesus. And we have what? Peace with God. So we can rejoice in that hope. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these moments that we've had to ponder this incredible passage. And I pray that each of us in the quietness of this moment will indeed surrender our hearts to you and accept you, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior. May each one of us experience the peace that comes from being justified just as if we had never sinned by accepting you through faith this morning in our hearts. Grant to us that peace and that assurance and may it indeed bear the fruit of hope in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.